trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. This is the verse for the sermon preached at Sutherland Spring Baptist Church in Texas one week prior to the mass killing that took place on November 5th. Pastor Pomeroy, the pastor of Sutherland Spring Baptist, who had lost his 14-year-old daughter in the shooting, might have made a prophetic utterance in light of such brutal killing. I mean, who can understand such senseless act? Who can make sense of all these seemingly pointless sufferings? And worse, this kind of mass killing like the one in, in Sutherland Spring was, not, was just one of the many similar incidents, including the one in Las Vegas or maybe the elementary school in California. When sufferings seem too overwhelming, when evil seems to be prevailing, when things seem too difficult to understand, we are confronted by a dilemma, which is whether to abandon God or to trust Him, trust in Him with all our hearts. Pastor Pomeroy chose the latter. And so did Job in the Old Testament. Today I chose to preach to you on this difficult topic and on this difficult book of Job in the Bible ahead of our annual Advent season because this suffering world needs hope. And hope can only be found in the coming Messiah. As we prepare ourselves and look forward to the second coming of Christ, we need to also be the light of this suffering world. So, let's see what we can learn from Job, a wounded hero whose faithfulness to God has shined through history. So now let's read the opening lines of the book. Uh, of Job. And I'm going to ask Emily. Emily. Yes, there you go. Okay. Emily is going to read this selective lines of chapter one. But it's going to be a long reading. So thank you. So today's passage comes from Job 1 1 to 5 and then 13 to 22. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all, of the, peop- all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the 
Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. After reading the passage, let us all have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for leaving us uh, this wonderful book in the Old Testament that we can get to know more about you, about who you really are. So grant us a humble heart and a learning heart that we will look at the verses in this book and then we will know you the way you want us to know you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but the book of Job is a very difficult book to read. For one reason, it's very long. It consists of 42 long chapters. But we might be familiar with only three of them. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 42. Second, the 39 chapters that we are not familiar with seem to be very repetitive and not going anywhere. It's kind of frustrating to read. And last but not least, even though you read through the whole book of Job, you won't seem to have found the answer for the issue of suffering. At least not the kind of answer we hope to get. However, before we embark on the journey to read through the book of Job, and yes, I'm going to preach through the whole book today. It's actually Job 1, 2.42, not N42. So, before we do that, okay, we need to understand what problem that Job was wrestling with. Job was not wrestling with the issue of suffering in general. No. He was wrestling with suffering that does not seem to match one's own deeds. He couldn't comprehend why the righteous suffer. This is, in fact, the question we all ask in suffering. What have I done to deserve this? So, no matter in, in ancient or, or modern, we all struggle with the issue that what happened to us do not seem to match our own deeds. Why good things don't happen to good people and bad things to bad people? And because we know that the reality doesn't work that way, it creates a sense of unfairness that really bothers us. 
So what Job struggled with is, the, is this kind of what I, what I call it as a theology of causality, or maybe lack of causality. But at the beginning of the story, the world seems to be in a perfect condition. Things happen the way they are supposed to be. Things happen according to this theology of causality. In the beginning, it says, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So Job is a good guy. A righteous, God-fearing man in a, surprisingly, a Gentile country. He's not even a Hebrew, but he feared Yahweh and lived by Yahweh's standards. So in a perfect world where theology of causality works perfectly, this is what happened to Job the righteous. He had seven sons, three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man, and maybe even the richest man, among all the people of the East. Job is good, so Job is rich. Theology of causality. You do good, then you are blessed. This seems to be the case so far here in Job's life. But then, reality check. In verse 13, Job's situation had a 180 change. In one single day, his life changed from being the most blessed to being the most cursed. Job encountered a series of four catastrophes. One after one, one is worse than one. At the end of that fateful day, he lost everything, including his wealth and his children, in one day. And not only that, he later was afflicted with painful sores all over his body. At this point of the story, even us, as readers, would have a hard time accepting the plot of the story. We need to note that from being the most blessed to being the most cursed, Job's way of living has not changed a bit. It wasn't that Job has become bad and has done something evil to deserve such ill fate. Job received all these terrible news when he remained as a righteous, godly man. So how does this story make you feel? Job chapter 1 is what I call it, theology of anti-causality. There's no direct cause and effect. In fact, this is not even a theology. It's not a theory. But rather, it is reality under the sun. Look at all those shooting incidents. Look at all those terrorist attacks. Look at all those children in East Africa, in North India, who died of famine. What did they do to deserve that? We don't understand. Job doesn't understand. We may ask, what kind of world is this? But the fact is that we will not find the answer in this world. As readers, 
of the book of Job, we have an advantage that Job doesn't get. We are offered an explanation, which is unknown to Job, of why Job has such ill fate. We are told that between Job's blessed life and Job's cursed life, something has happened in, in the middle. This thing happened not in the world, but in heaven. Chapter 1, verse 6 explains this. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. It is in heaven. Well, the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. This scene took place in a heavenly court, and it offers us an explanation of Job's suffering. However, the main point is that Job doesn't know this. In Job, if Job here represents mankind as a whole, he represents us, then it means that there is more to what we can see in this world to explain the existence of suffering. We look around the entire world and still cannot find a satisfactory answer to suffering because there are still many things that are unknown to us, including what happens in heaven, which can have a direct effect on our lives here on earth. Let's see how God described Job. God said, there is no one on earth like him. There is no one like him. This phrase in Old Testament usually applies to God only. But God said it to Job. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. No man who fears, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So even God admits that Job is a good man and doesn't deserve to be cursed. And not only God, even Satan admits that. Satan said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan did not argue with God whether Job was a good man or not. Satan agreed that Job was a good man. But what Satan trying to, was trying to attack was not Job's deed, but his motive or even his entire faith system. Satan said that Job has done good, but it's only because he wanted to receive good. What Satan was proposing was the theology of causality. In Eastern religion, it's called karma. What you receive is totally dependent on what you do. It's cause and effect theology. What you do determines what you get. It's more like a trade, a bribery. You require to perform something in order to get something. Or you are obliged to receive something if you have done certain things. You can control your life by what you do. This mentality, although it seems fair in the first place, it is in fact the central thinking of what we call prosperity gospel. The more you love God, the more you would receive from Him 
or to be precise, the more you love God, the more God is obliged to give you. Your blessing, in terms of health and wealth, is a direct measure of your spirituality. If you are ill, if you are poor, then you must be spiritual defective. If this so-called theology of causality proposed by Satan in this theology, you do good, you receive good, you can see that God is no longer a sovereign God. Under this system, God would become merely a scorekeeping machine. You would earn credit for every good you do, then blessings will be bestowed upon you when you reach certain level. This is just like the sticker you collect for coffee you bought at McDonald's. A free coffee for every seven cups purchased. In the world system that is governed by theology of causality, cause and effect, in which we might think it is a perfect and fair system, you can see after all, our fate is determined by our own deeds. What's wrong with that, right? But it would be a world that no longer needs a God. All we need then is a score-keeping mechanism. No more grace, no more mercy will be possible. No more forgiveness, no more second chances. If we demand that sufferings only happen to people who deserve them, then it would be a world based only on a score system. Satan told God that Job loves him, fears him, only because of the blessings that he can receive. It's basically bribery. In other words, God is not the subject of Job's love and fear. Blessing is. God is only someone whom Job needs to please in order to get blessings. In other words, God is not by His nature a glorious God. God's glory must be achieved by granting favors to His people. So I hope you can see now that because something, sometimes sufferings cannot be explained or accounted for, it actually so, shows us that God is a sovereign God. And He is not merely a score-keeping machine. It's not that we must receive good, that we do good. It's actually that we must do good regardless whether we receive good or not. We do good, period. Then, whether we receive good or not is totally up to God's sovereignty. And in this system of God's sovereignty, mercy and grace would become possible and available. If our God is sovereign, then no one can claim to deserve anything. When we think we deserve anything, we are in fact thinking that God owes us something. So the reason that we sometimes struggle with the concept of suffering is that we might more or less incline to accept the theology of causality. Sorry, brothers and sisters, what I said might not be pleasing to your ears. But it is true. You know, even Job's wife cannot accept the fact that God is sovereign and does not owe us anything. 
in chapter 2, verse 9, she told Job, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Wow. Someone just look at your own wife. I mean, she's really committed to this line of uh, till death do us part, right? Just go die. So now without any blessing and full of curse, even his wife is telling him to curse God. WWJD, what would Job do? Would he curse God? Or would he continue to praise God? Is Satan right? Or is God right? The scripture continues to tell us Job's reaction to all these. At this, Job got up and tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Thank you, worship team, for choosing such a relevant song, connecting the song with this verse here. What Job said here is what I think one of the greatest proclamations by any human being in the Old Testament. You can see, it is not that Job is immune to sadness, sorrow, or he had a miraculously uplifted spirit. No, not at all. Job said this in deep sorrow and pain. He tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground. These are all acts to show one's deep sorrow. True praises to God does not require us to put up a fake smile. True praises to God can happen in our tears, in our cries. True praises to God happen when we insist that Satan's concept of causality is wrong. God is sovereign. And that's why we say that the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So at this point of the book, it seems that the story can end here. It's a perfect ending. Job has stood strong even after all these catastrophes, leaving all of us a good role model of faith to look up to when we encounter our own share of sufferings. But the fact is that Job does not by far end here. There are still 40 chapters to go. This is just the introduction. You know, we need heroes who overcome the threat of suffering. So we want Job to be a short book with only two chapters. But this is not reality. The biggest threat in suffering is not on the onset, but when it remains there for a prolonged period of time. So by the end of chapter 2, we know that Job sat on the ground for seven days, seven nights, without saying a word. After seven days and nights, Job broke silence and said to his three visiting friends, the scripture tells us that, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. At the end of seven days, the word curse finally comes out from Job's 
mouth. After seven days and nights, Job's children continued to stay dead. His wealth continued to remain lost. His sores all over the body continued to torture him. Then for the first time, he cursed. But not to God, but to his own birthday. It's pretty strange to curse your own birthday. I mean, you don't sing happy birthday to yourself. You say, hey, curse the birthday to me. In reality, you cannot curse anything in the past because it cannot be changed. So what Job means here is that he would rather not to have been born. After noticing that his situation has not improved, Job has become more bold or even audacious. In fact, prolonged suffering could make one feel entitled that he or she has the right to question God, to ask for an explanation from God. So in chapter 31, we've jumped 29 chapters already. In chapter 31, Job cannot resist such urge and he took it all to God. He said, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Defense here means lawsuit. Job is like taking God to court. He is suing God for how he was treated. Well, can we sue God? Can a man sue God? It happened in 2008 in Nebraska, United States. A senator, this guy named Ernie Chambers, launched a lawsuit against God to the state court. On his statement of complaint, he said that God had caused many to die through all kinds of natural disasters, such as earthquakes, hurricanes, flooding, and epidemics. So he decided to sue God. It's a real case, okay? But at the end, the state court declined to listen to this case because God did not have an official address. And that the court was unable to notify the defendant. Is that a legitimate reason for not being sued, Robert? Is that, is that? No? Okay. <laughs> Don't know. So later, this senator argued that since God is omnipresent and He is everywhere, and God is omniscient, so He knows everything, then God must know that He is being sued, and He must be present in the courtroom. Oh, I have to say, theologically, he's right. But at the end, the court still declined to listen to his case, and the case was closed subsequently. So back to Job. He wanted to address God directly in a court setting. What would God respond? In ancient literature, most gods would just ignore these claims by mere humans. But not the God in the Bible. God responded to Job, but not in a way that Job would have expected. God said to Job, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Or can you voice thunder like His? 
you can see here that God is not really answering Job's question. God is showing Job who God really is. Sometimes our answers do not lie on the issue, but on the person of God. We can overcome our struggles not by getting the answer, but by knowing who God really is. And God, in his dialogue with Job, continued to give Job some examples of God's achievements. One of the most interesting ones to me was his mention of ostrich. God told Job, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot might crush them. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. God was actually saying, let's just take a look of an ostrich. She runs fast. She has strength. She's also very stupid. She's virtually brainless. Not only that she would put her head in the sand to avoid danger, but that's only a myth actually. It's not really true. But she would also crush her own eggs because she runs too fast. It's very strange and weird animal. But God still created it. Job, do you understand why? Job doesn't. Neither do we. It's part of God's creation. We have to accept the fact that there are many things that we don't know or we cannot understand. At this point, Job is speechless. He has no words to counter God. In the midst of suffering, Job has lost his orientation and thought that God owes him an explanation. Well, God responded, but God did not give him such explanation because in doing so, God would have led Job to assume a superior position when no man can assume. God did Job a favor by putting him back in the right position. Back to the position of realizing his own inferiority before God. And then Job came to senses. He said in the last chapter of the book, he said, I know that you can do all things. No plans of yours can be formed. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And then he said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Before all these sufferings, Job only heard of God by ears. When life was smooth, Job's perception of God might be based on the concept of causality. Oh, this God is good. He gives me, he gives me good because I do good. This is the God he heard of. Although he feared God, he might not have the right understanding of who God is. But now, after all these devastating losses, this concept of causality was completely torn apart. Now he knows that God is truly sovereign and he doesn't owe anybody anything. Job now understands 
that there is nothing you can do or claim if God decides not to bestow any blessings on you. So now he realized that all he had in the past was not because he deserved it, but because of God's grace upon him. The word grace cannot coexist with the word deserve. From the angle of grace, Job now has seen God with his eyes. At the conclusion of the book, God granted Job more wealth than he used to have before all the disasters happened. He also, Job also gets another ten children. The only thing that he's stuck with, or, 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 or I shouldn't say stuck with, but has not changed, was his wife. Sorry. So, so at the end, God blessed Job with more than he used to have. A lot of people are dis- a, a bit disappointed with this ending. Honestly, when I first read it, I had the same feeling of disappointment. It's like a fairy tale happily ever after cliche. Also, this ending appears to support the theology of causality in which Job repents, and then he receives all the blessings again. Job gave up the fight with God and submit to him, then God would bless him abundantly. Another reason we might not like this ending is that this kind of happy ending doesn't always happen in reality. A lot of people, good and faithful Christians, though never abandon God in the midst of suffering, would never receive anything close to what Job, Job gets in their lives. So is this a flaw ending by the author? But if we see Job as a human being just like us, this so-called happily, happy ending doesn't totally get rid of Job's pain. Yes, Job's life and our lives must go on after each setback in life. But everyone who has suffered would understand that even though the pain is gone, the scar will continue to remain. This is especially true when someone has lost their child. For Job, the ten new children do not and cannot replace those who died in the tragic death. The passing of children can never be compensated by having new ones. I think that Job, for the rest of his life, would continue to miss his ten deceased sons and daughters. Every year, he would take his new children to the grave to cry, to mourn, to remember, and to tell them stories of their ten elder brothers and sisters. And then, the last verse of the book tells us that Job gets old and Job dies. In the middle of his suffering, Job had wrestled with God. But what's great about Job is that he did not wrestle with God, argue with God for the rest of his life. He did not stay in a position where he sees himself as God's opponent. He did not spend the rest of his life 
pointing at the sky to curse God. He let go. He let God be God. He went back to his own life to continue his living. He continued to worship God and fear God. And then, he experienced a life similar to ours. Getting old, losing eyesight, memory getting lousy, movement getting slower, until the end of his road. But in all these, Job has seen God with his eyes. This is the end of the book of Job. But then, in the movie world nowadays, especially my favorite Marvel movies, there is such thing called post-credit scene. Anybody knows what is post-credit scene? It, it's like a short film, like a like couple minutes, that will be shown after the closing credits are being rolled. So now I hope that you would allow me to add this fictional post-credit scene to the book of Job. And I would call it Job 43. It's not real, okay? It's not a real chapter in the Bible. I just make it up. Okay? Mercy on me, okay? Use your imagination. Job 43 goes like this. Another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. And at the end of this fictional Job 43, Satan is mute. There's no word for him. If this heavenly scene was not about Job, but about you, about me, we've got to think, who will speak the last word? Is it God? Or is it Satan? Brothers and sisters, I truly hope that Job would transform our relationship with God. That no matter what circumstance we are in, we can say that the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I pray that our lives will be a testimony of such great proclamation that at the end of our lives, God will be the one who holds the last word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you because you're sovereign. But at the same time, that you have power, you have authority, you are also gracious. You are also faithful. You are also merciful. For us, as sinners, we deserve nothing, no blessings from you. But still, you gave us your Son, Jesus. That in his suffering, in his atonement on the cross, that we can be called your children also. 
So we ask that your spirit guide us every day in our lives. That as we are going to encounter our own share of sufferings, may what Job said be our guiding principle. That God, you can take away, but you also give. No matter what, may your name be always praised. Lord, hear our prayer as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?